So I've been preaching for the better part of two years through, the, through Genesis, and particularly the life of Joseph. But today I want you to turn to Colossians. Uh, last week it was funny because Miss Charlotte, uh, or it was two weeks ago, Miss Charlotte, you came to me and you're like, you got up in the pulpit, I immediately opened my Bible to Genesis. It's like I programmed her or something. Uh, but today we're going to be in Colossians 1, and I want to kind of tell you why. Uh, this is a day of, really it's just another day. It's another day where we get to serve the Lord, we proclaim His goodness, we get to demonstrate our thanks for Him, we get to dwell in His peace and in His Word. Uh, but for whatever reason, our, our calendar says uh, December 31st, 2024, or 2023, wow, I'm going to skip to add. <laughs> and... Uh, for, for whatever reason, there's everything within me that wants to not do a New Year, New You sermon. Because guess what? It is the same day. It, there's really nothing different between today and tomorrow other than the date change. Some of us are out of problems with the 24 part, you know, writing it down on paper. Some of us won't write it on paper at all, have a problem with writing it in emails. But there's really nothing different from day to day. We might have new experiences. We might come up to new trials, new tribulations, new, new encounters of some sort, new pain, new joys, new deliverances even. But the thing is, is none, there is nothing new under the sun. We're told that in Ecclesiastes, right? There's nothing new under the sun, and that is a good thing. There's nothing new that you will experience that someone, has not else, uh, someone else has not experienced before, at least in principle. And there's one thing for, for sure. That Jesus is not going to change tomorrow. That Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And that's what I want to come to you today with. Is that there is nothing new under the sun. And that the reason why that is, is because Jesus is the same today, yesterday, and forever. But for some reason, it feels like every year, and this is just true, Everybody's asking, what New Year's resolution are you going to make today? You know, it's January 1st. What are you going to do new? Are you going to lose some weight? Are you going to start working out more? Are you going to read more? Are you going to... All these things, right? But the reality of it is, is all those things are about self-improvement. And I want us to walk out of this place knowing that there is nothing to improve on in Jesus. And that's where we should be placing our hopes. And that is who we should be pursuing in the new year. That is who we have pursued all the way through 2023, at least from this pulpit, at least in this place. We have preached Christ. We have preached him crucified. We have preached him resurrected. We have preached him ascended. And we have gone through every single week in his word, by his grace, and for his glory. We will continue to do that tomorrow. And the next day, as long as there is tomorrow. But why does it seem like our lives, when something new comes to us, kind of get shifted and thrown upside down? Why is it that we walk through every experience as if it is the, a new thing? Like it's a, a thing that is boggling our minds, that's bothering us, that's going to set us adrift in the waves, and it's going to toss us to and fro. Why is it that we feel so unstable? I think it's because of one reason and one reason alone. 
It's because our first reactions, our first loves, our first focuses are not Christ himself. They're, we put our eyes really closely and immediately on the circumstances that we come up against and not necessarily the one who's the Lord over those circumstances. We, when we come under some pain, when we, are encountered, when we encounter affliction, we don't necessarily run to the comforter, the one who is comforter in life and death. We go to our friend, our family, maybe even ourselves. Maybe we pull inward, but we don't go to the one who gives grace abundantly, who gives wisdom when you ask, who is wisdom itself. We have a tendency just to do something else first and then go, oh yeah, I forgot. I probably should pray about this. It, you know, you're with me, right? That, that's just how our lives work. That's part of being fallen humanity. That's part of living this life in, on this side of, uh, of the, the fall, really. But since the fall, this has been true. Everybody's been trying to do it their own way. And we have to, we're being reprogrammed by the renewal of our minds in Christ Jesus, those who are in Christ Jesus, to think his thoughts after him. So today, I want us to do that. I want us to fix our eyes squarely on Christ. And I want to do that through Colossians 1, 15 to 23. Now, let me give you some context for Colossians before we get there. Because I think it's helpful to see why Paul's writing this letter in the first place. See, Colossians was not a church plant for Paul. Paul didn't go there and plant the Colossian church. Okay, Actually, he went to Ephesus. Timothy was raised up as the pastor, and then he pastored Ephesus, and Ephesus went and planted Colossae, the church of Colossus, however you decide to say it. And he did this thing, and in Colossae, they had other problems. They had problems they encountered that they didn't know what to deal with, and so they wrote to Timothy, or Timothy knew about it, and somehow got back to Paul. Paul writes this letter to the Colossians to tell them, hey, this is how you handle this. You focus on Christ. What, what is this thing that they're coming up against? It's proto-Gnosticism, so I'm not going to get into it. But it's a religion that basically borrows on Christian capital. It uses a bunch of Christian terms. It'll even say God, and they mean something completely different. Um, it'll, it'll have a, a savior, but flesh is bad, and you know, spirit is good, and we're all trying to be released from this body, and our spirits will be joined with the pleroma, which is a word that we're actually going to use in a second in its real sense. So they're, they're having this struggle between uh, is this truth or is that truth? Is the gospel that we heard truth or is what they're saying truth? And so Paul writes to the church at Colossae this letter to teach them, to exhort them, and to equip them to live lives that are worthy of the gospel that he has preached, the true gospel. He teaches them about Christ's person and work first. And then he encourages them to turn away from the vain philosophies and lifestyle of the world, particularly the Gnostic tendencies that the world lives in. And he equips them with the proper way to grow in Christ Jesus and to focus their hearts on heavenly rather than earthly things. And that's what we're going to do today. We're going to look closely at what Paul has said so that we might be able to firmly fix our hearts on the truths of the gospel of Christ Jesus. So, when we, when we look at this, I just want you to see one thing, and one thing only, and then we're going to build on it as we go. Christ is sovereign. 
Christ is sovereign. That's what he wants these Colossians to know right off the top. That is the foundation. Christ is sovereign. So if you have your Bibles and you are able, would you stand with me as we read God's word? We're going to start in verse 9. Whether I put that in the slides or not, I don't know. So when we get to verse 15, you just keep, you catch up. Starting verse 9 for some context. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. That's the main point. So that we might walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, forgiveness of sins. Now our text. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. The word of God for the people of God. Maybe seated. So our text this morning is a beautiful, what some would call a hymn of Christ. And if you read it, you're like, oh, this is pretty easy to memorize. He is, he is, he he is before all things, and he is the head of all things, and he is the beginning. Notice, it's a lot of repetitive statements. And so, like Paul, I want you to be able to look at this and go and and be able to ingrain it in your hearts. Paul's writing the the Colossus Church for our purpose and that's so that they might be able to worship the sovereign king of the universe, Christ the Lord. He does that in three sections. Yes, it's two paragraphs. Those of you who are paying attention and works literary, like have literary things. But the structure of it is structured in three different sections. And those three sections have three points. And those three points are such. And I'm going to give them to you quickly. And then I'm going to hit them as we go. Verses 15 to 17 you're going to see that Christ is sovereign over creation. Christ is sovereign over creation. Verses 18 to 20, you're going to see that Christ is sovereign over new creation, over 
the new creation, if you really need the article. Um, and then you have verse 21 to 23. Christ is sovereign over reconciliation of sinners. Christ is sovereign over the reconciliation of sinners. It's pretty simple. Christ reigns. He reigns, so we worship, right? He is sovereign, so all of creation should worship. He is sovereign so that we might be reconciled to him. Without this sovereignty, without this kingship, without this reigning over all things, we could not and would not be reconciled to God. That's what we want to see today. And we see um, two points that we need to kind of pay attention to. Verse 10, we we read it earlier. It's not really a part of our text, but this is the outflow of verse 10. It says this, to remind you, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. This statement is what Paul is trying to say that he's praying for the Colossians. This is what, to be honest, what I pray for you all on a regular basis. I just repeat, uh, not repeat verbatim, but this is what I pray for you, that you might be able to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. But he starts in a weird place. He doesn't give them practical steps, right? He doesn't give them like, okay, so now uh, to walk worthy of the Lord, you need to um, look like this, be like this, do this thing, right? Now he starts with the one who's the creator of it. He starts with Jesus. He starts with the preeminent one. He starts with the image of the invisible God. And why does he do this? Because he knows that, verse 23, if indeed you are to continue in the faith, it will be only because of Christ Jesus. It will only be because of this Christ, the one that he is proclaiming in this little section. It is only because of him. Any other Christ will lead you not to eternal life, but to eternal death and hell. So he wants you to know that this is the Christ that you know, that you should know. Not the Christ of the, of the Gnostics, not the Christ of the philosophies, not the Christ of the worldly things, but the Christ who is preeminent over all of it. The one who reigns over all creation. And so that's where we're going to start is Christ is sovereign over creation. Point number one, Christ is sovereign over creation. If you have a child and they are doing tick marks, like mine do, three good words that you're going to need. Uh, Sovereign, if you don't know how to spell it. Kids, it's okay, just put an S. Um, If if sovereign, you want creation and you want reconciliation. Those three words are big big words, but those three words are what I'm going to say more than any other ones. So, sovereign, creation, reconciliation. Point number one, Christ is sovereign over creation. Now, this might seem simple enough, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But what Paul is doing here is putting Christ as the God who was in the beginning. God who created all things. That all things were created in him. He says as much. He starts this way. He says, he is the image of the invisible God. And why would he start there? Why would he start there? No one has seen the Father except in the Son. No one could see God. When Moses looked, asked God, show me your glory, what does he say? You cannot see my glory. No man can see my glory and live. But what does he do? He has grace upon Moses and he hides him in the cleft of the rock. And as he passes before him, Moses gets a glimpse of his glory. 
And Moses' face is arrayed, it's shining, right? It, and so much so that he has to veil it to be, go and preach to the people that are down at the bottom of the mountain. So no one could see God, but Christ is the image of the invisible God. That means we can definitely know this is who Christ is, or this is who God is. God is who Christ is, the real Christ, the one who is the image of the invisible God. See, Christ, when we say this, we're saying that Christ is the unique revelation of God. We're saying that he reveals the Father in its fullness, his grace and his mercy. He's not made in the image of God like Adam was, and like you and I are, right? We're image bearers, but we're made in the image. He is the image. So we are being built up into his image, in the image of Christ. He's the unique revelation of God. And why is that a big deal? That's a big deal because Adam was a sinful man, right? He took of the, 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 the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, and he ate it, right? And at that point, sin entered into the world. But Christ is the image of God because he has no sin in him. He, unlike Adam, is the true and better Adam, come to save the hellbound man, you and I. He perfectly reveals the Father's love and grace and mercy, and as such is this exact representation of God himself. He is not only the image of the invisible God, he goes on to explain what that means. He's the firstborn of all creation. Firstborn, all one word, prototakos, or however you decide to say it. This is what our Jehovah's Witnesses friends point to and they say, hey, see, he was the first created thing. But I think they're missing it, right? They're missing it. They're missing the point. He's saying that Christ, Paul's saying that Christ is the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn O of all creation. He's not the firstborn like conceived. He's not the firstborn in like birth order. He's not the first created thing. No, he is the preeminent the one who is, stands above all things, the sovereign one, the king. He, he does not have anybody above him. He is the Lord of all things. He's the firstborn. And notice it says it three times in this passage. He says in verse 15, firstborn of all creation. And then he says in 18, firstborn from the dead. And that and everything he might be preeminent. Now that word preeminent is the same word for firstborn. Interesting enough. So, we can see that what he means by firstborn is not um, Esau and then Jacob, right? It's not Esau was born born first, and so he's called the firstborn. No, Jacob is called the firstborn because he carries the inheritance, because he is the favored one, because he is the one who's going to carry the promise. Follow me? Christ is the one who is heir of all things. He's the one who is the inheritance of the Father. He's the one with the authority of God himself. He is the perfect representation. He is so much greater than Jacob. He's so much greater than Israel because he is the preeminent one, supreme king over all. That's what we're trying to get from this first little point, right? Christ is sovereign over creation because he's the image of the invisible God and firstborn of all creation. It goes on in verse 16. For by him all things were created. He just drives it home, right? But here's the thing is that word by him, it says for by him in the ESV. Some, some will say in him. That's probably a better translation of this. 
In him, all things were created. And that parallels the verse 17 when we get there. But the in him, all things are created in him so that he might be the father. That's why we can say he's prince of peace um, and everything that Isaiah 9 says about him. Right? All things were created through him and for him. All things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. Creation has a purpose. It wasn't just to set it and forget it, right? It's not this, this Gnostic idea that, you know, they, he, he's separated from his creation. No, he created all things for a purpose. And it was in him they were created and for him. So you and I are created for him. If you are a Christian in this room, you know this. If you're not a Christian in this room, guess what? You were created for a purpose, and that major purpose was to glorify Christ, was to call you to be called to glorify his name. See, we're, we see this, there's pressed on us in Psalm 2. We're supposed to kiss the son, lest he be angry. And Psalm 89 also emphasizes that the Messiah, the Son of God, is over all creation. And the same word in the Septuagint is used here, protokos, firstborn. It's pretty cool how, how God works through all of his word to give us a full picture of who he is. So much so that all things in heaven and earth owe their existence to him alone. He is the preeminent king over all creation. That's Paul's point. He wants the Colossians and us to focus on him. He wants to say, look, all of creation looks to Christ for their subsistence, how they continue for everything that they have, even if they don't know it. Even if they don't know it, everything was made through him and for him. And just in case we missed it, verse 17 wraps it up and states it clearly. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Right? In him all things hold together. There's not anything outside of his will, power, and authority. There is nothing that happens outside of his knowledge or his ordination. There's nothing outside of him. Everything happens and everything exists because of Christ. You have to keep this in mind if you're going to navigate the treacherous paths of life. If you don't realize that Christ is the one who is still over all things, sovereign over all creation, then you will be tossed like a boat with no anchor in the midst of a storm that cannot be brought into submission. It's impossible for you to see who and what Christ is doing if you're not keeping your eyes on him. We sing this song, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow, what? Strangely dim. Why? In the light of his glory and grace. When we focus our eyes and our hearts on him, what happens? We are immediately enlivened. We can have joy without the happiness. We can have joy in the pain. We can have joy in the sorrow. We can have joy in the change. Joy in every circumstance because our joy is Christ. He is sovereign over creation. It doesn't mean that we understand it. That doesn't mean that we will ever understand all of it. But to remember that everyone and everything is under his rule, is to have the first step for turning your eyes upon him and him alone. So what do we do with this? 
What do we do to this section? I think, I think first off, we have to realize that God is who he says he is. When he says that he is king and he is sovereign, he means completely. That, again, nothing is outside of his realm. And so, how do we make that known? That's part of the discipling, uh, discipleship call of Matthew 28, right? The Great Commission, it says this, Go, therefore, and make disciples. It, the creation doesn't know, particularly humanity, does not know without someone preaching. Turn with me to Romans 10. In your Bibles, turn with me. Romans 10, I want you to see it. Romans 10, starting in verse 13. The same apostle Paul who wrote Colossians, it's the same apostle that wrote this. He says, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How are they to believe in him whom they've not they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? How are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. See, Paul wants him to, to, wants us to do something with this idea that Christ is sovereign over creation. He wants us to proclaim his sovereignty over creation. He wants to call his, the, the people, the, the humanity made in his image to come to him, the Lord of glory and grace. But how will they hear unless we tell them who he is? How will they know who he is unless we proclaim his glories and his grace? I think that brings us to a point of who and what is around you. Think for a moment. Who, who is around you that does not know the gospel? Who has not responded to the gospel of grace? Are you around unbelievers? Do you have friends, maybe you have kids, who don't know Jesus? Who don't know him intimately as their savior? You have a job to do. If you don't have friends who are unbelievers and you don't have children, how are you, how are you putting yourself in places to proclaim the glories and grace of Christ? How are you putting yourself in places that they might know his name? Like, are you, are you trying to put yourself in a place so that you might be able to encounter unbelievers and then be able to share the gospel? The going is not the important part in Matthew 28 necessarily, but it's as you, as you go, as you meet believers, you're supposed to be making disciples. Unbelievers, you're supposed to be making disciples of his name. So, question is, how are we doing that? How are we proclaiming the sovereignty of Christ over all creation? How are we proclaiming that he is king and that you need to bow the knee, kiss the son, lest he be angry with you? But there's good news to that. And that is the second point. Point number two, Christ is sovereign over new creation. Over the new creation, the new creation being the church, Christ is sovereign even over that. Here we have in verse 18, Paul continuing to glorify Christ. He says he is the head of the body, his church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. So two things we have 
a people that he is sovereign over. He's sovereign over all of creation, but specifically and especially over his people in the church. But he calls that people to do something, and it's for a purpose, and it's so that in everything he might be made preeminent. This goes back to Matthew 28, 19 to 20, making disciples. He says this, zooming on the work of Christ even further, he points out that Christ's sovereignty over all things in the first part, and then he focuses closer to show us that he is especially sovereign over his body. His representation, that's what we are, is the representation of him on earth. <laughs> and that is so much shown here that he's trying to press the point that you have, he has authority over us and we should do what he's calling us to do. The one who is saved is the one who continues to sin, in other words. And he makes it very clear, he is the beginning explaining how he is the head of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn of the dead. He's saying because of his resurrection, he has sovereignty over his body. Just like, why are my hands moving right now? It's not because I'm nervous. It's because I'm moving them, right? My head is directing my hands and my feet. Your head is directing you to listen or to think about other things or whatever it is. You are doing something because the head is calling you to do it. Jesus is the head. He is the one who wills and works through his church. He is the one who brings us into submission to him. He is sovereign over his new creations, particularly because he gives them a, a, uh, a calling, a purpose, a, a thing that they are supposed to do. He is preeminent, he says. Being first formed from the, dead, from the dead, Christ shows himself to be sovereign over everything that is to be glorified after, right? including his body the new creation particularly. His preeminence, his sovereignty over even death, which is what he needed to raise from, right? He had to raise from the dead to demonstrate that he was king of life and death so that he might be made preeminent. Or he might be preeminent. That, might, that doesn't mean made preeminent. That means to be recognized as preeminent. Okay, let's be clear. And then he says... To make it even more clear in verse 19, Paul says that in him, in Christ, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. The fullness of God was pleased to dwell. This verse parallels verse 15. You see that in verse 15, he says, he is the image of the invisible God. And here in 18, uh, in, sorry, 19, he says, in him, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Just kind of like stacking. He was not just the image of God. He's not just sent by God. But he is God himself. The fullness of God is pleased to dwell in Christ Jesus. And so what that means is that he needs nothing. But he commands everything. He is sovereign to a point that God is sovereign over all things. And we've already seen that he's sovereign over all of creation. And he's especially sovereign over his church. His dwelling place. Interesting words, choices here. His dwelling place. When we think about dwelling of the Lord in Scripture... What do we think of primarily? The temple, the tabernacle, the spirit within us. We are the temple of God, right? The temple is not any longer uh, standing, but it, it's also not the only place that God resides. He is in every one of us. He is, we are his temples, and we are called to live in accordance with him. But he, you know, the temple is just a representation of his dwelling, right? And the, the real... Uh, being of Christ, God dwelt on the mercy seat where the ark was, but now it does not is not contained by any 
nothing except for Jesus himself. He is the fullness of God. And only in him can you be saved. Only in him can you have life. Only in him can you see what is coming next. And that is nothing new under the sun. But because Christ is divine, he is sovereign over all creation. And he says this in verse 20. It is because of this, because he is divine, because he is the image, because he carries the message, because he is perfect through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. There he points out the sacrifice that Christ is. He is we, we have an infinite debt, right, to God. And Christ himself is the only infinite being that could have, at any possible level, paid the debt that we all owe. But he had no debt of his own. That's the kicker here. Every one of us are finite beings, and we have a, but we have an infinite sin, an infinite um, grievance against God. We, have, we are rebels against his will. And as we are in Christ Jesus, we are still outside of his will. We need to be rescued, and we cannot do it ourselves. There is nothing infinite about us except for when the Spirit of God inhabits us and dwells in us. Unless Christ, unless you are identified with him, the fullness of God, you will have an infinite punishment. Because he, at the fullness of God, has an infinite ability, infinite uh, appeasing, sacrificing everything. He's infinite, and he can do infinite things. We are finite. He is infinite. We need his righteousness, that righteousness to, call, to clothe us. Not only is Christ the sovereign Lord, not only, not only is he God the Son incarnate, but he has made a way for sinful humanity to be reconciled with himself. He was the first of the new creation, the glorified um, Christ after his resurrection. So how do we become a part of this, is the question. How do we become a part of this peace uh, by the blood of the cross? How are we made one with him? How are we reconciled to him? We're reconciled to him by the gospel. That thing that we're supposed to proclaim is the thing that we are also reconciled by. So what is the gospel? It's pretty simple, and it's infinitely deep. God in his sovereignty created all things. We've already seen this. That includes our, the first humans, our parents, Adam and Eve. And he created them in his image and likeness, and he called it very good. He was well pleased. It was good, good. Until Eve took the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And Adam took after his wife. In that taking of the fruit, of the one thing that they were not supposed to do, sin, transgression, rebellion, entered into the world and no one can rescue themselves from its grasp. Humanity and all of creation became slaves to that sin. They became slaves to their wants and their desires, their pleasure, until God the Son became incarnate and took on flesh to ransom for himself, his bride. He lived a perfect and sinless life. This is what you have to know to be a Christian. You live a perfect, sinless life and paid for your debt on the cross that he did not have. He did not incur any debt because he had no sin within him. But he sacrificed himself. He went to the cross and died an undeserved death as a sacrifice for all who believe. He rose again from the grave three days later 
appeared to many witnesses. And after 40 days, he ascended into heaven, proving that he was Lord over life, death, and now he sat in the power and the seat of authority. There he advocates for his, for his bride. He sits at the right hand of the Father and says, he, she is mine. But how do you become, my, how do you become one of his? He calls you to repent of your sins, of your nature, and turn toward him the one who is the life giver, the fullness of God. <clears throat> Asking him to give you his righteousness. We talked about it this morning. It's kind of beautiful how John 4 and this passage line up. Jesus goes to the woman at the well. What does she do? He goes, hey, give me something to drink. And the woman says, uh, why do you ask for me something to drink? Uh, and this is because she was a Samaritan and he was a Jew. And he said, but if you knew the gift of God, and the one who's asking you, give me a drink, you would ask from him for a drink of living water. See, when we encounter Christ, he calls us to repent of our sins and turn toward him, to ask him for the living water of eternal life. And he will give it to those who call out to him. He will give it to him, those who cry out for his mercy. You will be saved you believe that the Lord Jesus Christ is your sacrifice, the sacrifice to God on your behalf. This is what the gospel calls us to do. It calls us to repent and believe in Jesus. That's for everyone in this room. That's for all of the world. Those of you who are in Christ Jesus, and this is what you should be proclaiming to yourself on a day-to-day -day basis. Every time you sin, every time you are wondering, every time you hurt, every time you are in joy, have, have happiness, joy, you name it. It doesn't matter. You turn to Christ, you preach yourself of the gospel and say, thank you, God. Thank you for this blessing for you and for you and you have done. It is only the gospel of Christ that we are able to stand firm with stable footing. And that's kind of where we get to the very end of our passage. 21. And you, who are once alienated alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. See, he has made peace by the blood of his cross to reconcile you who were once alienated and hostile in mind. You were far away, just like the Colossians. You were moved, removed from God's grace and mercy, and yet he brought you near. You are not just removed from his grace and mercy, you are hostile toward him. We're hostile toward him if you're in Christ Jesus. This is the good news. You have been reconciled. You've been brought together. You've been brought near to God. That is the good news of the gospel. That is how we walk in the faith. He says, walk in 10, walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. And in 23, he says, if indeed you continue in the faith, that is to walk worthy of the Lord. Stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. It's focusing your life on Christ and Christ alone. It's focusing your hearts on Christ and Christ alone. It's bringing your whole being under his authority because he is sovereign over all things. He's sovereign over creation. He's sovereign over the new creation. And he is sovereign over the reconciliation of sinners which you and I are the foremost. You and I need him more than he ever needed us. There's this doctrine of um, God 
that I like to focus on, and it's called aseity. Okay, so A-S-E-I-T-Y, aseity. What does that mean? That means that he needs nothing of us, and he is fullness itself, the fullness of life. Everything is within him, and nothing can affect him. It's what gives us immutability and impassibility and all these other systematic terms. But it, it helps me focus my heart on his fullness when I'm going through hard things because he does not change, even if I am. Notice I have gray hair. I have been here for four years, and I have gotten more and more and more gray hair. I'm not blaming that on any one person. We'll call it wisdom. Oh, thank you, my kids. Um, but they are. But but that change is evident in my hair, right? It's also evident in a whole bunch of other things about me. My personality has even shifted quite a bit. I'm a lot gentler than I used to be. It's a, praise God for that. Um, he has brought me near, and He has changed me. He has changed me by because I have been focusing my heart and on Him. He's changed you because He has saved you and focused your heart on Him. Now. That is incremental sometimes. You know, sometimes we feel like we're stagnant and we're not growing in the Lord. What he's calling you to do is to trust him and his purposes, even in that stagnation. That means you have to go back to the word and back to prayer and go over and over and over and over again and ask for the well of living water to give you a drink. You're the one. There, He is the one who brings you near. He is the one who keeps you. He is the one who has reconciled you in this body of flesh so that you might be blameless, so that you might be holy, that you might stand above reproach before him, him being God the Father. See, there's nothing more practical for Paul and for us than the person and work of Christ. Keeping this in mind, that Christ is sovereign. He is sovereign over creation, over new creation, and over the reconciliation of sinners, in which I am the foremost, just keep saying to yourself that I need God, I need Jesus, I need his work, I need his righteousness. That's how we're changed from one degree of glory to another. It's when we take our eyes off of who he is and what he has done that we begin to shift away from the hope of the gospel before us. So Jesus has this parable. He talks about two men, one who built his house upon sand and one who built his house upon the rock. The one who built his house upon sand, storms came, and his house and everything he owned washed away. The one who built his house upon a rock, it didn't matter what storm came. That house stood. As we go through this next year, I want you to focus your hearts on the sovereign one of the universe, Christ himself. And if that means that you sing to yourself all day, the Christ the solid rock, on Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. That's what you need to do. Is to remind yourself of who he is, what he is, that he is ruler over, and everything in between is how you keep walking faithfully. How you become stable and steadfast. How you do not shift from the hope of the gospel that you have once heard. Focus on the sovereignty of Christ. Ask him for grace, mercy, wisdom, for all of the wisdom in the world is in him. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. Let's pray.